Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be Genesis chapter 28, the whole chapter. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Pat and Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Pad and Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Pad and Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Pad and Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. And a warm welcome to those of you who are visiting us at Grace Baptist Church. I uh, hope you know that you're more than welcome, and it's been a joy already to worship with you today. Hope you have your Bible still open to page 28, chapter 28, because the things that I want to say um, to you today are going to be f- from the Word of God. I don't want to uh, make anything up. I want simply to to the best of my ability to show you what God has already said. So this morning, after a little bit of a break, last week we returned to our exposition of the book of Genesis. And before the summer starts, and before we take a little bit longer of a break from Genesis, we're going to have opportunity, Lord willing, to, to get to know Jacob a little bit better. Um, since really for the next 10 chapters or so, the narrative is going to focus on him. And I understand if you're a little bit apprehensive about that, because let's just be honest, the, the picture of Jacob that is emerging already is not very flattering. In the last chapter, if you can remember back a couple of weeks, uh, we saw Jacob living up to his name, 
and deceiving his father and his brother as he grasps for, as he seeks to obtain the blessing in a totally underhanded way. Now, I don't want to ruin the plot for you, but I think it's helpful if you would know that by the end of this, Jacob is given a new name. He's given the name Israel. And uh, that, as you know, is the name also of the nation that will come from him. But between these two points, we're going to be able to follow something of the trajectory of Jacob's life. We're going to be able to mark his maturity in the faith. And here's another spoiler. We're going to see that Jacob's growth, his spiritual growth, is going to be attributable to only one thing, and that is the grace of God. He is going to develop in terms of his faith and his reliance on the Lord, but that's not going to be due to any kind of natural factors or an environmental factor. It's not, because of the, it's not going to be because of the influence of other people, uh, whether family or friends or foes. It's not because Jacob is going to develop more street smarts and that he's going to kind of grow in his relational intelligence. No, it's all going to be because of the grace of God. From the time that he was a fetus, grabbing his brother's heel, to the end of his life, when he's grabbing onto the the heel of his staff and he's leaning over it, bowing in worship and blessing his grandchildren, along that timeline of his life, Jacob's life is going to be a story of grace. And if you're a child of God, so is yours. That's your story. Jacob's story is your story. And I expect that throughout all of this, you're going to find Jacob's life to be very relatable in lots of different ways, but primarily in this respect, that he, like you and like I, are trophies of God's grace. And there's no other explanation for our lives. If you're saved and if you're being sanctified, and ultimately if you're going to be brought safely all the way home to heaven, then it's all going to be because of the sovereign grace of God. And the means that the Lord uses to to bring us there, to sanctify us, are also very similar, I think, to the means that he uses in Jacob's life. He's going to use suffering. He's going to use relational conflict. He's going to use his word. He's going to use the remembrance of his promises. He's going to use all kinds of blessings, not just the negative stuff, but the Lord sanctifies us through his blessings. And all of these things feature not just in Jacob's life, but in ours as well. But the primary means of sanctification, I hope you understand this by now. It'll be important for your discipleship if you understand this. The primary means of sanctification, as 2 Corinthians chapter 3 explains, is beholding the glory of God. This This was our theme verse for our praise night last week. Beholding the glory is what transforms us from one degree of glory into the next. In other words, we are made like him by seeing him as he is. And the point is that we desperately need God to reveal himself to us in glory if we are going to be changed. Now, in Jacob's life, his most significant spiritual progress is made at a couple of key points. Uh, First with a reverie, and then with some wrestling. But what both of those things have in common is that they are both times when God graciously reveals himself to Jacob. And our passage today features the first of these revelations, And it comes to us in the form of Jacob's dream. Uh, So that's the focal point of the chapter. And that's where we're going to want to focus our attention in this sermon. But it's also important for us to better see that 
uh, it's important that we would note what leads into this revelation and what follows from it. Okay, so let's study this passage under three headings. First, the run-up. Second, the revelation. And third, the response. The run-up, the revelation, and the response. If you're taking notes, those will be the, the main categories. If you're filling out the back of your bulletin, those will be your big points. Let's look first at the run-up. And here we want to understand something of the context, the situations that lead up to Jacob's glorious encounter with the living God. That encounter took place one night on a long journey that Jacob was on to Paddan Aram, which is the home of his mother's family. And that journey was prompted by a couple of things. First of all, we saw a couple of weeks ago, we saw that this journey is prompted because of Jacob's own deceit. Um, you'll remember what his brother's response to this deceit was. That Esau was furious. He was enraged. And he was making plans to kill him as soon as it would be appropriate. So if Jacob was going to live, his, his mother understood this, Jacob understood this, if Jacob's going to live he's going to have to hightail it out of there. That, that's one of the reasons he's on this journey. But as this chapter opens, it becomes clear that in addition to Jacob's need to flee for his life, he also had a need to flee for a wife. He was still at this point an eligible bachelor. And uh, his parents' biggest fear, it, it becomes clear, is that he would, he would take one of the nearby Canaanite women to be a wife. That he would do what his, his brother did, which was gone and married one of these Hittite women. And you've, you've heard that old uh, expression, that old uh, adage that kind of doubles as advice that you give to a new groom. Happy wife. Happy life. Well, as far as Rebecca was concerned, according to the last verse of chapter 27, her rule of thumb was Hittite wife, hated life. She, she couldn't even stand to, to live uh, being around these wives of Esau. And she, she was not interested in the prospects if Jacob was to marry one as well. And so this is the one thing you'll notice in this narrative. This is the one thing that she's on the same page uh, with her husband about. So Isaac calls Jacob and he gives him a blessing and he gives him instruction. And what we have here as we come into this chapter is a bit of a redo from the last chapter. And this is kind of nice because this is a bit of redemption here. We read that Jacob uh, comes to his father, and he comes as Jacob, not playing dress up, not with cotton balls pasted to his arms. And, and Isaac blesses Jacob as Jacob, not think th thinking that he was blessing I or Esau. And what this means is that they're finally yielded to the will of God. And so Jacob speaks the blessing of God over the son of the promise. You can tell how, by how Isaac is invoking the promises that have been made to first Abraham and then to him. You, you can see that Isaac finally is on board with the Lord's plan for the pathway of his promises. And it's a beautiful thing you, to, to see and it's a beautiful thing to see when the people of God, after getting sidetracked, after falling into sin, uh, can, can be redeemed and restored and, and brought back onto the path of faithfulness and obedience. Now, in addition to the blessing, Isaac gives his son very clear instructions regarding marriage. He says, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. 
Now, I'll just note in passing that there's some funny foreshadowing here. He says, take as your wife one of the daughters. That's, that's funny if you know uh, where this story is going. But the point is clear enough. It was necessary for the son of the promise to have a wife that was on board with the Lord's program, not a wife that was going to distract him from it, from it and draw him away from it. That's always the problem with marrying a godless spouse, is that they would distract you and detract you from following the Lord's plan. And so Jacob heads out on his long journey to secure a wife and to secure his life. There's those dual purposes, and they're not contradictory, they're complementary. Now speaking of Esau, I want you to notice what he does in verses 6 to 9. You know how the book of Hebrews, uh, how it speaks of Esau and how it mentions that he is desperately, frantically pursuing the blessing after it was too late and after the door had already slammed shut. Well, it's really a pathetic picture. And it begins with him crying out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. That's in the last chapter, verse 34. And that pathetic picture of Esau continues into our present passage with Esau seeing that his father had blessed Jacob and sent him on his way with instructions about a wife. You know, Esau is, is understanding that his father was not pleased with Canaanite women. And obviously, Esau wants to please his father and so he's going he's gonna to try to make that happen. And furthermore, uh, verse 7 seems to indicate that, that Esau was also very motivated by his brother's obedience. So you take all of this together, the blessing, the instruction, the obedience, all of these apparently were very attractive to Esau, and he, he wanted a piece of that action. And so he sought to obtain these things. And Esau here is a bit like a, a woman who wants to be, she wants to make herself more attractive. So she, she gets a nose job and she injects collagen into her lips and she injects Botox into her brow. Um, she ends up looking like Cruella DeVille. It's like some scary cartoon character. No doubt this woman had very good intentions, but she went about it in all the wrong ways. And the result is disaster. It's utter failure. It's a total self-own. I don't know what the kids, I don't know what the term is now. It used to be owned and, and then pwned and fail. I don't know what you're saying these days, but Esau falls flat on his face. Look at what he does. He goes out and marries a daughter of his uncle Ishmael. Yes, Ishmael, the child of the flesh, the representation of, of everything that is opposed to doing things God's way. Esau goes to that side of the family and takes Mahalath as a wife, in addition to the wives that he already has. Yeah. Way to go, Esau. That's the way to please the Lord. Now, it turns out this is a very common strategy, and I wonder, have you ever tried it? You know, you are naturally attracted to the promises of God and to the gospel. Perhaps you're drawn to the lifestyle of the people of God. You, you're attracted to their peace and their joy, their obedience. And so you, you really want to try to get that. You want to try to reproduce that somehow in the flesh. But you do this without grace, without faith. And because of this, all of your attempts are not just futile, they're actually destructive. Esau is a tragic figure. He, he's a pathetic person. And he stands as a testimony to the truth that 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He's a testimony to the truth that the Bible speaks very clearly about, which is that the flesh profiteth nothing. And that people who are in the flesh and in the realm of flesh and operating out of their flesh cannot please God. What you need and what I need and what we all need is grace and faith. And these are, these are pleasing to God and these are gifts of God. They're not things that you can muster up and stir up in your own flesh. Well, that's the run-up. And there's really two paths that you can go down. Uh, the path of the flesh, which is the one that Esau is traveling. It's a dead end. Or the path of faith. And this is the one that Jacob's on, even though he, he's not making great progress so far. This is not an easy path, this path, path of faith. And by verse 11, uh, this pathway turns dark and uh, he's all alone, or so he thinks, and he's sleeping on the ground. But as someone has said, uh, he has his father's blessing behind him, and he has the promises of God ahead of him, and so things cannot be as bleak as they appear. And this brings us to our second point, which is our focal point, and that is the revelation. The revelation. So the sun has set by now on this one particular day of Jacob's journey. And in that culture, of course, it makes it absolutely necessary to stop for the day. Uh, you can't travel in the pitch black. Uh, you got to get a little bit of shut eye before you can wake up in the morning and continue on your journey. And the text says that this was a certain place that Jacob stopped off. And it turns out that this place has a name. Uh, I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. But, but at this point, those kinds of details are not important. All that matters is that God is sovereignly ordering all of the details in the run-up to this divine revelation. Now, uh, you know a, a luxury hotel, even just a regular hotel these days, uh, offers you a pillow menu, you know, where you can choose between goose down or hypoallergenic, and you can select your desired firmness, soft, medium, firm. In this particular place that Jacob was, he only had the one choice, extra firm. <laughs> Rock hard. It, seem, it seems a bit strange to us, to use a large stone for a pillow. But really, this is, this is just a headrest, something to get the angles, quite, the, the angles right so that the blood drains away from your head and not down into it. And if you've ever been a soldier, uh, you'll understand that you'll, you'll use whatever you can find. Apparently, uh, Jacob didn't have any trouble falling asleep, falling into a deep sleep even, because that night he had the most amazing dream. And through this dream, the Lord graciously revealed himself to Jacob, much to Jacob's great comfort and encouragement. So, so we want to do our best to see what Jacob saw that night, so that that thing, that revelation that so helped Jacob, if we could, if we could somehow see that for ourselves, maybe it would help us and encourage us as well. So we, we want to learn right along with Jacob about the person and the work of the Lord God. And there's at least three things that we can learn about the God who revealed himself in that dream to Jacob. First, he's a powerful God. He's a powerful God. There's a lot of features in this revelation that would lead us to this conclusion, but one of them is the ladder itself. Think about this with me for a minute. And, and ladder, perhaps, is not the best word to use. It's not, the, it's not the best image to have in your head because 
the thing that, that Jacob saw in his dream was a, a large enough conveyance to allow two-way traffic. And uh, ladders typically don't do that. So most commentators and uh, Led Zeppelin apparently believes that a better image is a stairway to heaven. Not just to heaven, but more importantly, from heaven. You know, it's difficult to read about this scene in the book of Genesis and, and not think about the Tower of Babel. Can you think back that far to uh, Genesis chapter 11? Think back to Babel, which was the account of man's illusion and his ill-fated attempt to build a structure that would reach all the way to heaven. And as we saw way back then, that attempt was laughable. It's a joke. Human beings can't do that. It's, It's their hubris. It's their arrogance that thinks that they could ever attempt something like that. But here we have it. Here we have such a, such a thing. And the difference is that this was not built by human hands. It wasn't constructed from the ground up. This was a stairway that descended from heaven and was set up on the earth. And you know how beautiful works of art, um, paintings or sculpture or beautiful works of literature even, kind of are designed to lead your eye to the focal point. Well, this is what's going on in our narrator's description of this stairway. So naturally our our eyes start at the foot of the stairs in verse 12, set down on the earth, and we're drawn upwards to see angels ascending and descending on on the stairway. And then finally our eyes are drawn to the focal point, which is, the top, where we read that, Behold, the Lord stood above it. Verse 13. So this is where our attention is rightly focused. At the top, where the Lord is standing in the position of authority and power. This is all His. The angels, they they are His servants. They are doing His bidding. And this is in stark contrast to Jacob, who right now is passed out. He's lying down. He's on the dark earth. In contrast to that is the Lord God Almighty standing in the bright heavens above. And so Jacob's fearful reaction, which we'll see in a few minutes, confirms that he got the message loud and clear that this is a powerful God. But second, it's also important that we would notice that this is a promising God. He's a promising God. First of all, just notice the point that I hope is not lost on you, that this is a God who speaks. He's not, this is a God who is pleased to reveal himself. Not just with striking visuals, so that we would piece the stuff together on our own, but he, he clearly communicates with his word. And here's what we expect. We, we naturally think that the first words that the Lord God is going to speak to Jacob are going to be words of condemnation. They're going to be words of strong rebuke because we know the history here. We, we know the run-up. We know that this Jacob character has been a stinker. That's putting it mildly, right from the time he was conceived in utero. He's he's been a conniving little son of a gun. So you think that the Lord's first and maybe even last words to Jacob would be heavy rebuke and condemnation. But there's none of that. Do you notice there's none of that? For this chosen one, there's only words of promise and of hope and of encouragement. Our God is a promising God. And he's so faithful. What are these? If you look at these promises that God speaks, what are these except 
the same promises that God has made first to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Jacob. Promises about land and about seed and about dominion. Notice in verse 14 that the promise is that Jacob's offspring would be spread over, it'd be so numerous, first of all, but then it would spread over the face of the earth in every direction. You might have expected the Lord in his description to follow the compass point, you know, the, the way that you learn them in school. Uh, never eat shredded wheat. Is that how you guys learned it too? Okay. So you'd expect that to be the order, but, but it's, it's as if the Lord says, nah, I much prefer the cross shape. West, east, north, south. Wink, wink. But then I want you to notice something that we've seen from the beginning, which is that the Lord has, has global plans. This, this, these promises are not just for the blessing of one particular family or one particular nation, but rather God's intention from the very beginning is that through this family and through this nation, all of the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Brothers and sisters, we have a promising God. And, and even when we, he speaks, we, we expect to hear words of, of justice and judgment and wrath, yet because he is such a gracious God, instead all that his people hear are words of promise and blessing. I want you to notice thirdly that God is a present God. And this perhaps is also surprising. You understand something, don't you, of the transcendence of God. You're, you, you, even if you don't know that fancy word, you know the concept, which is that God is exalted, that he is above all, he is high and he's lifted up. Again, verse 13 Says it, says it best. He is a God who is above it all. And that fits nicely with his power and his rule and authority. And you would be right to expect some distance between God, a God like that, and creatures like us. But one of the most glorious and gracious things about our God is that in addition to being transcendent, he is also imminent, which is to say that he delights to draw near to us. Our God is a present God. And, and hear it directly from him. Look at verse 15. He, he promises this, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. Psalm 139 does a great job of explaining the, the presence of God with his people, doesn't it? Wherever you go, there's no place to, to escape from this, the presence of God. I'll be with you, I'll keep you, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave until I have done what I have promised you. That's amazing. Not, as, not only is he a promising God, but he is a present God. And, and God's presence with us is, predict, is predicated on, on his power and on his promises. The, the, the reason he's with us is because he has determined to do for us. And so he is marshalling all that he is and all that he has in order to bring it to pass. And he does this not in a distant, far-off, hands-off, cold approach, but, but in a with us sort of a way. He does so with nearness. Now that point is not just stated explicitly, but it's, it's also portrayed primarily through the, the angels that are busy ascending and descending this stairway. Again, it shows the power of God because these are his angels. And these angels are doing his bidding. It shows you his rule and his authority. 
But, but ask this question. What is God's bidding? Well, it has everything to do with stuff that's going on on earth. He's, he's sending out these angels to accomplish purposes on earth. It's, it's, it's ministry, God's bidding, what he's commanding his angels to do, is to minister to God's people on earth. For what are angels? The author of Hebrews asks rhetorically, but ministering spirits who are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. What a beautiful picture of this, of this busy highway coming up and down stairs and the busyness of, of it all has everything to do with the fact that God is concerned to minister in a present way to his people on earth. Oh, it's a beautiful picture. And, and what is a stairway except access to the presence of the Heavenly Father? And how can we speak of such things without reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is superior to angels in every way, and who is the perfect representation of the Word of God and of the presence of God among the people of God? As John proclaims, the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. You don't get any more present than that. And more to the point, at the end of that first chapter in John, John records Jesus as saying this. Listen carefully. He He had just done a miracle, and the disciples' minds are blown. And he says, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Dan, dan. You ain't seen nothing yet. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. You might have wondered, what on earth does that mean? But now, having understood the picture in Genesis 28, you, you understand what Jesus is saying, don't you? That he is the stairway. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He is our access into the presence of the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He, he's the one that has been sent to reconcile us and to bring us to God. And after finishing his reconciling work, before he ascends to the Father, he encourages us with these words. Jesus says, Surely I will be with you, even to the end of the age. But then he, then he leaves. Then he ascends, right? Yeah, but not before the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, to be present in the most present way possible, namely to dwell in us. Friends, we have a God who is present. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have an even more encouraging vision before your eyes than what Jacob experienced. Please don't think, oh man, wouldn't that have been amazing to be in Jacob's shoes, to be able to see this glorious vision? Jacob would say, I haven't seen anything yet. You, you've seen you've seen the Lord Jesus Christ and in Christ you have the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ you have the perfect representation of the image and likeness of God in Christ the perfect character of God is revealed in the cross the awesome power of God mixed with the amazing grace of God, has been so perfectly shown. And just as this dream revealed God in in such ways to encourage Jacob in regards to all of the sin of his past and all of the uncertainties of the future, so, brothers and sisters, 
in Christ, you have a perfect display of the power of God and the promises of God and the presence of God, which is all of the encouragement that you need to live this week in a way that is pleasing to him. Whatever your circumstances, whether, whether that's singleness or relational trials, such as Jacob is fixing to head into in a big way, or whatever, whatever it is that you're going through, it will be enough for you. I'm not trying to be simplistic and reductionistic about your issues, but I'm, I am trying to maximize the glory of God and to suggest to you that it will be enough for you to know that God is for you and that God is with you and that he has made very great and precious promises to you and that he will not leave you until he brings all of those promises to pass in their fullest sense. He won't leave you until he brings you all the way home. Let's continue to think more about our proper response then under our third heading, the response. Now Jacob has a variety of responses to this revelation of God. And I think we can just group these into three main ones. And these are, I think, very instructive for how we too should respond to all of these things. First, there's a panic. There's a panic. When Jacob wakes up in the morning, he, like the rest of us, begins by trying to make some sort of sense of our dreams. You know, you can relate to this, right? You, you wonder, like, who was I running from? And why didn't my legs work? Why was I running in slow motion? I, I don't get any of this. And how is it possible that, that it was right at the very end of the semester, right before the final exam, and I didn't even realize that I was signed up for the course? And I hadn't certainly done any of the assignments. I, I just don't, I don't understand. What does this all mean? Well, Jacob doesn't have any problem understanding the dream. He, he knows instantly upon reflection that he has been in the presence of God. He exclaims, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't even know it. But then the next obvious thing hits him and we read in verse 17, and he was afraid. There's a, a panic that sets in. And friends, that is totally appropriate. When you realize that you're in the presence of such a high and holy God, you instinctively recognize, by contrast, your lowliness. You, you understand your contrasting sinfulness. And so it's, it's very appropriate that you would be afraid. That you would be very afraid. There's a, there's a proper panic that's associated with that realization. Because as the Bible says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Furthermore, this is the uniform response of anyone who's been in that situation, who's been in those shoes. Think, for example, of the prophet Isaiah, when in a vision he saw God Most High in his throne room, surrounded by angels, except this time the angels are shielding themselves from the glory of God and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. What is Isaiah's knee-jerk response? He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, when you see such beauty and such purity and such holiness, you cannot help but understand instinctively your contrasting creatureliness and wickedness. And so, shake. Similarly, when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush, it was necessary for Moses to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. 
And we also read that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Understandable. Or when Jesus reveals himself to his first disciples, demonstrating his power and his presence through this miraculous catch of fish, Simon Peter can only say, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I wonder, have, have you yet experienced the panic that is your proper response to the revelation of the fact that God is holy? It's necessary that you would fall down on your face and weep and wail in repentance over your sin and in worship. And that brings us to Jacob's second response. Not only is there a panic, there's a pillar. There's a pillar. It's a pillow turned pillar. So Jacob stands it up on end and he consecrates it by pouring oil on it and it becomes a memorial stone. It's something that he and his offspring can, can turn to and come back to and remember. It's a place where they can worship the God who has revealed himself and who has made such great and precious promises to them. He also names the place. He calls it Bethel, which means the house of God. And this is in keeping with his exclamation in verse 17. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Verse 18 says that Jacob called that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Luz. So that's interesting. We didn't know this until now. The place already had a name. And actually, Luz is a pretty prominent city. It's a bustling metropolis. But as far as the text is concerned, it was anonymous up till this point. Remember at the beginning it was just a certain place. And we're thinking of a barren wasteland that only has rocks around. The point is that all of that location's significance is tied to the fact that the Lord was there. Luz, the, the booming metropolis, had absolutely zero significance in and of itself. It was the presence of the Lord that turned that insignificant place into a sanctuary. And I don't think I'm over-spiritualizing to suggest that the presence of the Lord has the potential to give significance to any and all of the places that you'll go today and for the rest of this week whether that's your workplace or your classroom or your home or your neighbor's house to serve him. These are holy spaces. These are significant locations, not for any other reason except that they are marked by the presence of Christ. And so, friends, be encouraged as you go from place to place. You're going with the presence of God and that has the power to turn everything that you do, everywhere that you go, into something significant and meaningful for his glory. Now let's look very quickly at a third and final response. Not only is there a panic and a pillar, but there's a promise. In verse 20 to 22, we find Jacob making certain commitments that are in keeping with the revelation that he has received. And there's, I understand there's potential to, to read these as conditional promises. There's a way that you, you can read this where Jacob is kind of cynical and he's just waiting to see if God is actually going to make good on his promises and on his presence and his blessing before Jacob commits to living for the Lord. But I, I think it's better to read the if at the beginning of all of that, at the beginning of that vow, as a since. So since God has promised all of this, 
the Lord shall be my God. That is, this kind of a God is a God worth following. And Jacob recognizes this right away. He's a God that has graciously chosen you. He's a God that has revealed himself to you. He's a God that has taken the initiative to commit himself to you. A God like that is a God worth following. And your, your only proper response to that is to commit yourself to him in thankful obedience and faith. It's a, it's a commitment to, to, to live a life of worship. Notice that Jacob says, this shall, this shall be the house of God. This is going to be a place of worship. It's a commitment to, to live a life that is characterized by giving. So Jacob also says, I will give to God a full tenth of all that he gives to me. And note, please, I, I, I don't have time to explain this in depth, but just note this that this is long before the tithe becomes a law. This is the original design, that that we would just give generously back to the Lord in gratefulness of all that he has given to us, in acknowledgement that all that we have comes from his hand. And so we're quick to to give a, a portion, a generous portion back to him. I would also have you note that you and I live long after the tithe is a law. Jacob is living before it's a law. We're living after it's a law. And in the new covenant, we are new covenant believers and we're living this side of the cross. Our giving is meant to be like this. It's it's meant to be a, a generous, grateful response to all that the Lord has given to us in Christ. And there's no law, there's no number, there's no strict percentage that's tied to that. It, it flows out of a heart that is just blown away and full of gratitude for all that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you give like that? Can you, can you make a commitment to give like that? I trust that you will go today in the strength and in the encouragement that comes with knowing something about the power of God and the promises of God and the presence of God. Friends, He will not leave you until He has accomplished everything in you that He has promised that He would. And here's, here's a little hint too. He's not even going to leave you after that. No, you'll climb the stairway to heaven and you'll get to experience the presence of your God and your Savior for all of eternity. In the meantime, let's, let's just lead lives that are characterized by repentance and faith and worship and commitment and service and radical generosity. Let's do this for the glory of God. Amen? Amen.